in the 1920s, 1930s, it was medical women that were at the forefront of this new research. You know, it's almost like reclaiming the narrative. So rather than making sweeping statements, it was saying, okay, well, I'm gonna go out and talk to women. I'm gonna go out and talk to girls and ask them what they, they are experiencing. Hello and welcome to the Medical Women Podcast, the podcast from the Medical Women's Federation, the largest body of women doctors in the UK. I'm Dr. Nathana Bayankaram. I'm the Vice President of MWF, and I have the honor and joy of being your host, as each week we hear from wonderful guests to help you feel more empowered and confident on your medical career journey. Hello, everyone. Just a quick note before we get started on the episode. As you know, International Women's Day is coming up on the 8th of March, and we're delighted that we're doing a joint event with the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries. The event will be on the important topic of safety of women in cities, and this will hopefully be our first in-person event since the pandemic began. So we'd love to see you there, keeping everything crossed that we get to do in person. I'll pop a link in the show notes so you can register your interest and you'll be the first to hear about tickets. I'm also really excited that it'll be at the Apothecaries Hall because the first woman doctor to be granted a license to practice medicine in the UK was Dr. Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, and she gained her exam from the Society of Apothecaries. Today's episode is on the Medical Women's Federation's 105th birthday, and we're exploring the topic of the history of women in medicine. So I thought that fit in rather nicely. So um, register your interest at the link below, and we'll get going on the episode. So welcome everyone to the first episode of the Medical Women podcast. As we're celebrating 105 years of the Medical Women's Federation, I thought it'd be fitting to spend this first episode celebrating the history or her story of the organisation. So MWF was formed on the 1st of February 1917. And to discuss this topic, we have the wonderful Sophie Almond, who's just completed her PhD on the history of the MWF from 1879 to 1948. And you'll learn during the episode why this date precedes 1917. At the time of recording, Sophie had just submitted her thesis and was awaiting her viva, which we wish her all the very best of luck with. Discuss the early history of MWF, the important but somewhat unacknowledged contribution of women doctors in both the First and Second World Wars, as well as Sophie's advice for anyone considering doing a PhD. I find learning about the history of MWF fascinating because it shows how far we've come in the last 105 years and how much the women who came before us have really paved the way. And it inspires me to try and do the same for the women who are going to come after me. I hope you enjoy this episode. So the Medical Women's Federation was founded on the 1st of February in 1917. Um, and this is the 1st of February, 2022. So we're marking 105 years of the Medical Women's Federation. So for this first episode, I'm delighted to be speaking with Sophie Almond. Hello, Sophie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming. So Sophie has just completed her PhD on the history of the Medical Women's Federation. Um, so Sophie, if you could just um, introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit about you and how you ended up doing your PhD on, on this. Yeah, definitely. So um, my name is Sophie, as you've said. Um, I'm, so I've just uh, handed in my PhD on the history of uh, the Medical Women's Federation from uh, 1879 to 1948. 
Um, and I've just started a new job at Ofqual, so that's what I'm doing at the moment. So not very PhD related. But um, so I got into the Medical Women's Federation because I did my master's dissertation on the history of menstruation in Victorian um, culture and society. So that was my MA in English studies. And I, whilst looking at all of the different documentation, I came across the MWF because of the work that they did with changing perceptions of menstruation in the um, interwar years, so the 1920s, 1930s. So it was outside of the scope of what I was doing at the time, because I was looking very specifically at the 19th century. But I sort of want, I didn't know what I wanted to do basically after my um, MA. And I sort of was thinking about doing a PhD in subjects that I could think about. And I sort of, whilst I got digging into the MWF and I found about, I found out about the archive at Welcome, Welcome Library in London. And I sort of started to do some digging and realised that not a lot had been written about it and that actually there was so much material that it was sort of presented itself as a really interesting idea for a PhD. Uh, so it's in English, actually, which is quite strange because it's sort of history based, but I don't quite fit into the um, one box. So it's an interdisciplinary study of what the Medical Women's Federation did over that period. Um, the issues in society and within the profession that women specifically um, faced and sort of the issues that they faced and how they overcame them, basically. Brilliant. Um, so that's really interesting. And so sort of, I'd not actually thought about the work that um, that the Medical Women's Federation had done in changing perceptions on, on menstruation. So that'll be um, really interesting to discuss a bit later on. Um, what I wanted to start with was discussing how MWF um, came, came about. Um, so what led to them being formed on the 1st of February in 1917? Yeah, absolutely. So I think whilst I was doing my research, one of the big things I came across is that there wasn't a lot about the MWF prior to 1917. So mm -hmm. it actually started under a different name in 1879 as the Association of Registered Medical Women. So that um, association's records are held at the Wellcome Library uh, in London too, with all of the um, MWF documents. So it's quite, it's quite a hard thing to explain, but in the late 19th century, women were starting to trickle into the medical profession. It was really hard to get in because men didn't really want them there. And in the sort of 1870s, 1880s, there are a handful of women in Britain that were qualified to practice medicine. Um, and they were refused um, membership of the BMA, so the British Medical Association. So whilst they were starting to come into the profession, they weren't allowed to involve themselves in exchanges of knowledge or, you know, sitting down and talking about cases and things like that so they really the women sort of got together and realized that they needed to form their own association because women with with had begun to face issues within the profession before they'd even got into the profession if that makes sense because people didn't want them there so 10 women started the association in 1879 and it sort of grew from there so numbers were always quite low in comparison to how many women were qualified the percentage that were members of the ARMW was always quite low, but they sort of came together to try and make things better for women within the profession, basically. So they dealt with issues like equal pay right in the beginning, um, turn of the 19th century or turn of the 20th century, rather. Um, and uh, for example, in 1880-ish, there was a international congress of um, medical practitioners held in London, 
Um, by that point, internationally, there were quite a few women that had had uh, qualified and they weren't allowed to come to the Congress, basically. So the ARMW made a huge fuss about it. Um, they weren't allowed to attend, but they held their own um, gathering at the London School of Medicine for Women. And they sort of made it clear that they weren't happy with the situation. So things like that, they were really trying to um, make a change within the profession. Yeah, I think um, I think it's really interesting kind of thinking of what the, the sort of things that they worked on at that time. You know, you mentioned um, mm-hmm. equal pay, which 105 years later, we're still discussing the, the gender pay gap. Um, yeah. So it's really interesting looking back at the kind of things that they they were looking at then. Um, so so there was a group of 10 women in the late 19th century that started the association and then it started growing. And then was there anything specific that led led to them changing to be the Medical Women's Federation in 1917? Yeah, so that's an issue that within um, the very small number of people that look at women um, in medicine, it's not hotly debated, but I think there are a lot of misconceptions. So I think okay. people that haven't studied the MWF in detail thought that the very obvious thing that they thought it was was because of the First World War. So 1917, you know, we're, we're in the First World War. Women were working with, not in the army. There were lots of issues of um, the fact that they didn't have rank, they didn't have commissions, they weren't allowed to use uniform, uh, wear uniform. So they were um, facing huge, huge issues uh, both at home and overseas because. Uh, their male counterparts parts weren't taking them seriously if you can't wear a uniform you can't know what rank that person is um, they weren't getting the respect they deserved so that was certainly a factor um, that sort of acted as a catalyst to get things moving a bit quickly a bit quicker but actually sort of we're talking maybe four or five years previously they'd started to discuss it um, about um, the fact that they wanted to bring together all of the local associations of the ARMW into a new federation. So I think quite early on they were thinking about how can we become bigger, how can we become better, and then as issues started to come to the fore uh, during the First World War, it sort of, um, yes, acted as the catalyst to move things along a bit, but there were sort of rumblings of um, certain members wanting things to change before the First World War. So that's why some people aren't quite sure about why it started. Okay, that's fascinating. And I guess if we've got all these sort of local pockets in different places, then mm-hmm. pe- people wanting to have like a national body, because if we put our voices together, um, we can can make a bit more more noise um that's really good that when they weren't allowed to go to the conference they they held their own their own conference and did their did their own did their own meetings um i read your recent paper so sophie had a a paper published recently um that was more focused on women and medical women in the second world war um but what i found really interesting in that was um that it described kind of at the beginning their struggles were getting into medical school in the first place um, and then slowly, as women were allowed to start go, going to medical school, um, joined the GMC register, joined the BMA, um, then the issues were kind of in progressing in, in their career. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so as you said, sort of in the late 19th century, the major issue was getting into a medical school. So most of the medical schools uh, were close to women. So that's why the London School of Medicine for Women was such a big deal. Uh, We then have the issue of there was quite an influx of um, female students 
before and during the First World War. So after the First World War had ended and uh, male uh, doctors had come back from the front, there were issues of um, space basically within the profession, within the medical schools. Um, they wanted to make sure that men that had fought uh, you know, for their country had the opportunity to finish their degrees or to mm -hmm. progress within their careers. And so women sort of took a back bench again. So there were renewed um, issues with equal pay, with representation, with uh, progression within certain specialisms. And, I, you know, sort of as we can sometimes see today, there are certain specialisms that women were more likely to be part of just because of perhaps how it fitted with their um, lives, whether they were married, had children. So, for example, general practice was always a very popular um, specialism for women historically within the profession and public health as well, although there were a lot of issues with um married medical women being excluded from public health appointments in the interwar years that it was sort of an area that they really um wanted to specialize in i mean this being said there is uh there are examples of sort of pioneering women that were surgeons for example so my um phd supervisor dr claire brock has done a lot of work on um, certain individuals that really progress their careers in surgery which you know historically and again arguably perhaps today but you know hopefully less so it was quite a male dominated um specialism so there are, there are these trailblazers throughout history that were really trying to push their careers forward but there were there were issues of representation in specialisms and as i said issues with um women being um disadvantaged because of their um, situations with whether they were married or had children um, so those were problems that they were facing at the time. Yeah I, I guess when you know when we're kind of looking back it's important to sort of look at what what things were going on in society at those times yeah. as well isn't it so with 1917 the the year before uh, women who were over 30 and who owned a property were given the vote so what I found really interesting is kind of the early aspect of MWF is very closely associated with the with the suffrage movement um which is why to this day all of our um branding um got my MWF mug yeah um I've got mine as well I have one on one of the places <laughs> that I was gifted <laughs> Um, but the the branding is um, is still purple to to remind us of that, um, and then I guess it was still a few decades where kind of maybe women were allowed to start working, and then once they were they were married or they started having children, it was expected that that they were going to give up their their careers and 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 stay at home. So it's um, it's interesting thinking of all of that because I think I think the reason that I find looking back at everything so interesting is because it just shows. Okay, yes, there is still a long way for us to go, but at least it shows how much progress there has there has been made um, and, and how many things that we sometimes take for granted. I don't think I, for a minute before I applied to medical school, thought, oh, well, I'm a woman, so I don't know if I can apply or um, maybe for some of the specialties, I thought, oh, how's this going to fit in with other things that I might want to do? But I don't think it it felt like, oh, I'm a woman, so I have to I have to do this. So. Um, I think it's it's really interesting to hear about all these women who paved the way for those of us that are in the profession now and also kind of gives us inspiration for paving the way to make things better for, for those that come come after us as well. 
Yeah, definitely. I think, like you said, the um, ARMW um, had very close links to the suffrage movement. So a lot of the um, pioneering women at the forefront of the organisation were um, intimately involved in the suffrage movement. Um, For example, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson um, and her daughter, Louisa, were um, very intimately linked with it. And I think the sort of irony at the time was um, that if you think about the sort of women that had been able to qualify to practice medicine, they were all sort of middle class. I mean, it was very, you know, they were all quite well off, basically. And they did, a lot of them did own property. And I think one of the um, ironies of the arguments that were coming out was that um, sort of legally speaking, these women could... um, certify a man to say that he was insane and therefore he couldn't um, vote couldn't have the right to vote because he was mentally unwell Um, but yet even though they were sort of very upstanding members of the community and some of them owned their own houses and property they weren't allowed to vote Um, so that was one of the arguments and they were intimately connected with the different sort of social spheres of um, society so they were coming across um, people that were very poor and working class conditions and they sort of understood what was what some of the working classes were dealing with and they were sort of were trying to argue that we're in the best position to vote to use our vote to um, improve society because we can see what's going on and we're you know well-educated women that have been to university because I think uh, university was another um, potentially at some point was another sort of criteria that you had to be able to tick off at one point and um, so that you know the well-educated women um, sort of middle class and yet they weren't allowed to vote until as you said um, the sort of law changed um, so yeah it's interesting in terms of like you said the issues that are still Coming up now and, uh, you know, over history, the ARMW and the MWF have always been at the forefront of trying to um, fight for equality for women, whether it be for pay, whether it be in terms of how female maladies are um, sort of viewed in society. So the menopause, menstruation, they're trying to rewrite the narrative, basically, that women are, you know, women are important members of society and should be treated as such. Yep, absolutely. 105 years and, and counting campaigning on, on these important uh, issues. And you'd said previously that for your uh, master's, um, you'd been looking at um, menstruation in Victorian times. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what the MWF did to kind of help um, help progress things? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll probably make a lot of sweeping statements <laughs> historically talking about what was the case. Uh, but vaguely speaking, in the 19th century, menstruation and the menopause were viewed as being, you know, d- diseases almost. They weren't just a thing that happens and you sort of get on with it. They were viewed as being really injurious to people's health. Um, so, for example, you know, girls were um, sort of told not to exercise during menstruation, you know, not to take baths, not to go to, you know, you weren't supposed to go to university because the female brain couldn't cope with the, you know, the the difficulties of learning. And if you're on, if you're on your period, basically, you know, who knows what might happen, you might drop dead from the, how hard it was on your brain because all of your vital energy is, you know, depleted. And again, with the menopause, you know, in Victorian sort of culture and society, women over a certain age, they weren't viewed as being useful anymore. So, you know, once you've had children, once you've reached the menopause, you know, there are depictions in popular culture, um, you know, in sort of uh, books and such that 
it's the sort of old crone sort of imagery of if you get over a certain age and you're not a fruitful person anymore then you know there's what's the point in you basically and those sort of things obviously changed to an extent when women started entering the workplace and women started entering higher education and perceptions slowly started to change but even sort of in the interwar years there were still outdated ideas about what women should or shouldn't do whilst they were menstruating so again you know not having a bath uh, not exercising really vigorously and the MWF and a particular um, individual member such as Alice Sanderson Clow she was a very big um, uh, voice in the BMJ for example of she was doing um, research into schoolgirls experiences of menstruation so she was I believe she was the medical attendant to the Cheltenham Ladies College um, and she had all of these girls at her disposal basically in terms of doing a study so x amount of girls attended the school she did a study of okay well how were they experiencing menstruation were they you know did they have pain were they able to do their normal activities what were their perceptions of it and the overarching sort of findings were that actually it wasn't a huge um, deal for the majority um, and that most of them were able to continue with their studies and continue with exercising as normal so um, the MWF really wanted to put forward the message uh, to rewrite the narrative on menstruation and the menopause and sort of say that actually it's not a huge big deal. There are exercises that you can do to relieve any pain. There are, you know, things that you can do to keep yourself healthy. It's not something that you need to go. I think menstruation was always historically um, linked to sort of hysteria as well. Mm-hmm. So the, yeah. the typical lady on a chaise long, um, you know, with a doctor at her feet, you know, well, what's wrong with you? Uh, well, you know, I'm not you know, it's my time of the month, I'm not very well. Um, so they were very sort of, they put out a lot of um, leaflets. I think one of their leaflets, one of the MWS leaflets, um, I think it sold about 25,000 copies. It was uh, advice regarding menstruation. So they were going out to schools, they were going out to um, sort of social clubs, they were going out to headmistresses, they were going out to mothers. It was all about re-educating um, women, basically, and trying to really get across that this narrative that had been perpetuated by men so this was male doctors in the Victorian times that were sort of saying women are incapable trying to say actually for the majority of people they're absolutely fine and um, the MWF did a menopause survey as well in the late 1920s and again that found that the majority of women um, didn't experience anything um, particularly awful when they hit the menopause you know there were certain um things that they were experiencing but actually they were all still very much um working and being useful members of society basically and that actually what you know hitting the menopause didn't mean that life was over you know there's yeah. still many years of um fruitfulness left so yeah absolutely i think um i think what's really interesting um sort of as, as I was listening to is that we're still we're still do, doing things to do with with those topics we're still talking about um about about periods um and you know kind of normal normalization of that I guess um and and the menopause and um kind of education about about menopause because there's still quite a lot ab- about menopause that um 
that that not everybody um un- understands or that isn't that well well mm-hmm. researched um so I think that's why it's really interesting kind of looking back at the last 105 years and sort of seeing where where things have been but also um how that fits in with what we're doing what we're doing now and what we're wanting to do um in in the future yeah I think it's I think that when you really think about it and like you said the stuff that goes on at the moment with um women's pain being discounted in certain medical settings like you said the menopause um there's been a huge push in workplaces for menopause cafes and things like that that people understand but you just think that in the 1920s 1930s it was medical women that were at the forefront of this new research you know it's almost like reclaiming the narrative reclaiming experience because the one thing that I would say about the research that the MWF was doing and the individual members were doing was that it was centering um, individual experience so rather than making sweeping statements about people that you know had been subjected to you know the male gaze almost it was saying okay well I'm going to go out and talk to women I'm going to go out and talk to girls and ask them what they they are experiencing and that's what um sort of comes across in the findings so it was really um sort of what people were experiencing and trying to um like you said sort of re-educate people on what was normal um Yep. And I'm I'm sort of smiling and nodding because our current president, Professor Chloe Orkin, um, as part of her presidency, had the wonderful idea that we we work as the Medical Women's Federation to do some research projects on topics such as menopause. Um, so mm-hmm. that's what we're doing um at the moment as well. And it will be um sort of speaking to two women about their their experiences. Um and and finding out you know what what education is there um is there about about menopause um about women experiencing pain um so I was just smiling there thinking oh we're still we're still do- we're still doing that that work and um and it of course still remains um incredibly important um thank you so much sophie you've given us a really lovely um and, and really interesting background into um into mwf um, I know there's still uh, lots and lots that, um, I mean, I could talk about this for ages, um, <laughs> but you've, you've just finished your thesis, so you probably want a bit of a break from talking about MWF, but is there um, anything else in the history that sort of really stood out for you that you think would, would be really interesting for our listeners? I think definitely the First and Second World Wars um, stand out. So the ARMW, when the war was declared, um, wrote to every member and said, you know what what are you doing what are you doing to help are you free you know we we you know before even being asked they were rallying to sort of say how how can we help because you know mm-hmm. people knew that it was going to be a big thing that was going to change the sort of you know landscape of society and all of these women it was literally about a week after war had been declared and they had taken over their husband's practices they had been offering their services pro bono pro bono to the, their local communities um, and, you know, doing whatever they could for often no money or very little money to help um, opening up their houses to evacuees. That was a big thing in the Second World War. So, as you mentioned, I've written an article about what medical women and what the Medical Women's Federation did during the Second World War, because that's not really been written about. And the same sort of things that were happening in 1914 were happening in 1939. So women going above and beyond for their communities often sort of being taken advantage of in terms of what they were offering um, and, you know, really 
um, working themselves to the bone, basically. It's not just, you know, I'm a GP and I'm working my usual very long hours in practice. I'm then going out and I'm working as an ARP warden. So I'm doing the air raid precaution stuff. I'm going to the local um, shelter to um, look after people. Um, you know, I've got evacuees in, I'm looking after my elderly mother, all of these different things. And, you know, they never really, medical women didn't really get the recognition that they deserved. Um, you know, there were a, a couple of stories of individuals that went above and beyond and were awarded um, George medals for their bravery because, um, you know, they've gone out in an air raid and they've themselves been sort of involved in an explosion and they've got a broken leg and they're helping people until they know that everything's been sorted and it's just these sort of I think with my research the thing that really really got me excited when I was in the archive with these individual voices that were coming out of um you know women that have largely been forgotten in history mm -hmm. because they've not done anything particularly amazing they've not won awards they've not you know they're not famous names but there are these just these women that you get a sense of their their voice when you're reading their letters or if you're following someone in the minute books over a decade and you're seeing them sort of their voice and that you know they're having a few arguments and meetings and they're discussing what they think about things you know the things that they were going through so things like birth control these new things that were coming up and they were having to contend with really contentious controversial subjects um you know how do we navigate this how do we stay true to what we want the mwf to be um how do we um put at the forefront of what we're doing our, our patients and our fellow colleagues um you know all of these interesting issues that were coming up i, I think that's what has you know made the past three years a joy because it has been it has been very hard um writing 80,000 yeah, words but it's yeah it's these individual little case studies that I've been able to draw out of people that have interacted with the organization over their careers and people you know people there's, there are big names like Jane Walker for example so she was the first president in um 1917 of the MWF and she'd been president of the ARMW for quite a number of years and okay. she dedicated maybe 20 years of her life to the federation and she was a voice and a, a name that was constantly coming up and so many of these women um I'd like to think the case is it's still the case now but so for so many of these medical women the MWF was you know, a, a, an extremely large part of their professional and personal life. You know, it's where their friends were. It was where, you know, they really felt a duty to the medical women that uh, were coming after them to sort of help them through like they'd been helped through and keeping it going. Um, so, yeah, it's, it has been a pleasure to find out more about the organisation and what they did, basically. Yeah, um I, I'm glad that you found it interesting because I think with any um, research and particularly a PhD when you're spending so much of like three years and lots and lots of hours um, like, like doing something there's always times where there's kind of ups and downs so I think it's it's so important isn't it that you that you enjoy that process um as you know the um the um membership of the MWF ranges from medical students and all the way to um to wonderful retired medical women um so if any of our listeners are um are listening and kind of interested in uh, contemplating doing a PhD is there any any sort of advice that you that you might offer them 
Oh, that's a very uh, interesting question. I think, you know, find something that you're really passionate about. Find something that piques your interest that, you know, find whether it be a rabbit hole that you go down and then it becomes something else entirely. I think, you know, it's, you have to, like you said, PhDs are a long slog and you have to be interested in what you're doing and that you have to be quite motivated. But I think definitely reach out to people. Don't, don't be one of these people that says, oh, maybe I'll do it one day. I think, you know, today is as good a day as any to start doing some research and start putting out some feelers as to what you might want to do. Um, and I think, yeah, looking at things like the places like the Welcome Library, there's just an absolute treasure trove of stuff there. And I've barely, you know, I spent three years looking at the MWF and I barely touched the surface of what they were doing and the, the vast amount of documents that were there. So there's always um, stones to be unturned. <laughs> Yeah, ab ab absolutely. Lots of lots of stones to to be interned. Um, and I yeah, I've not had a chance to go to the Welcome Archives yet, so I definitely um, wouldn't it when I next get to get to go to to London, I'll definitely have to go in and pop and have a have a look at the archives. Um, thank you so much, Sophie. That's been so so interesting. Um, a really lovely background of of MWF. Um, I just want to ask you some quick fire questions before we finish up, if that's okay. Um, so okay. the first question that I wanted to ask you is what um, book, so I am a total bookworm and I'm always asking people for, for book recommendations, even though my list of books that I want to read gets much longer than, than the list of the books that I actually managed to get through. Um, but is there a specific book that you think um, all medical women should try and read? Oh my goodness, that is a good question. I think, oh, so I can tell you one. Uh, the History of Sex by Kate Lister. So um, okay. Kate is a uh, lecturer at, I believe, Leeds University, and she's written a wonderful book about the history of sex and the history of um, whether it be sex work, how the Victorians viewed sex, um, contraception all of that sort of thing I have it as a coffee table book and it sparks conversations because you can see it and it's quite a glaring pink title and people are <laughs> like oh my goodness you're reading that and I think it's um a very good insight into how stuffy the Victorians were or how unstuffy they were and um you know it gives you quite an interesting insight into the history of sex which again I think is is an important area of study because it's been you know with it's women are such an important part of that sort of area yeah. and I think it's a great book to to read <laughs> great I will add that to the list of books that I that I need to read um the next question I wanted to ask you is um is there like one bit of advice that you've been given in your career that, that you found really helpful that you think other people might also find helpful that's a good question um I don't know about a specific piece of advice, but I've sort of said uh, one of my, my primary supervisor was Dr. Claire Brock, and she's been a very inspirational woman to, um, be, to work under, to work with, to be supervised by. And I think her sort of mantra is that, you know, follow those rabbit holes that look interesting, believe in yourself. Don't, you know, I think as women, we're so trained in society to make ourselves smaller to make space for other people and actually you know make noise if you've got something interesting to say or even if it's not that interesting I think say it shout it from the rooftops um 
you know, if you want to go for that promotion, go for that promotion. If you want to get that job, go for that job. I think, um, you know, we've got a lot of catching up to do. I think us women with everything that's been happening in history, I think it's just to, you know, if you're an expert in something, you're an expert in something. I think you have to own it. So that's her sort of the feels that I get from her, that I've gotten from her over the last three years. Well, well, thank you for sharing that because I think you're absolutely right. And that's, that's definitely what I want to do with, with this podcast as well is to, to help um, kind of get more women talking and feeling, um, feeling happy with sort of owning, owning their, their space and speaking up for things and applying yeah. for those promotions and things. Um, as, as you said, um, I've completely forgotten what my next, uh, what my next question for you is going to, to be. Oh, it was going to be, um, is there something that you know now that you wish you had known earlier on in your career? Mm, I think that, maybe for my career maybe life I just think that everything's going to work out I think in terms of doing a PhD and doing a master's you know I've spent eight years in higher education um, at the University of Leicester and I you know I hadn't quite settled on what I wanted to do and I wasn't quite sure where things were going and I think just sort of telling myself that you know whilst I've started this new um career in civil service you know there's still so many doors that are open to me you know I've published a couple of articles I've done my PhD and I just think it's sort of if I could tell the old me that it would all be okay and that those times that you know I I was crying over chapters I could couldn't, couldn't finish a sentence couldn't finish a paragraph and just sort of knowing that it would all go okay and that actually you know I'd be really proud of what I've written I just think that you know nothing nothing I think if something's hard it's worth doing if it was easy I wouldn't have done it so I think just sort of telling myself that it's worth it and that you know I'd feel really good afterwards when I had to do it <laughs> yeah absolutely well thank thank you for for sharing that I think you know we all we, we all need to remember to to tell ourselves ourselves that and I think you're absolutely right it'll be it'll be lovely to kind of go back and I, I wish I could go back to to the me at medical school that you think oh my goodness how am I ever going to pass all these exams to be like it's okay it's yeah. all going to be okay in in the end um my final question is a question that I've borrowed from uh, a group of young people uh, at the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health and us so they're um, a group of uh, children and young people that work with the Royal College of Pediatrics and uh, um, so as a pediatric trainee I follow their work quite closely and last year when they were interviewing um, potential candidates for the presidential role, um, they came up with this wonderful question, which they very kindly let me borrow. Um, and the question is, if you were a type of biscuit, what type of biscuit would you be and why? This is an interesting question because I quite like biscuits. Um, oh, you know what? I think I'd be, I don't know whether it counts as a biscuit. I hope it does. Uh, I'd be a penguin uh, chocolate Ooh. biscuit. I think we can, I think we can count that as a biscuit. Okay, good. Um, I think, cause I mean, it is, it is biscuity. Um, I think it's very reliable and dependable. Um, it also has the little sort of joke on the cover. Cause I think I'm, I can be quite a sarcastic sort of witty person. I think it's important to be reliable and dependable, but to not be boring. Um, and to have a little bit of spark in you. So I think, you know, you can always rely on a penguin that is not gonna fall away in your cup of tea, but there is a little bit of um, cheeky fun in there too. 
So I think that's quite big. I think, I think that is a, a very good answer. I think it's quite dangerous that I'm asking this question because I feel like I'm going to end up eating lots of lots of biscuits oh, no, no. as I'm <laughs> as I'm uh, recording these podcast episodes. Oh well, Sophie, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on on the podcast for the first episode, and congratulations on finishing your PhD. Um, maybe by the time this airs, you will have you will have uh, d- done your viva. But very best yeah, of luck sure. with that uh, whenever it is. Um, hopefully, this has been a practice, and you've answered the questions <laughs> wonderfully. So I'm sure I'm sure you'll you'll do brilliantly, and we all wish you every success. Thank you. And when it's done and published online, everyone will have to go and read it and discover something new for themselves. Yes, definitely um, read Sophie's paper. We've uh, we've put a, a link to that on the um, on the website, but I will put a link to that on the in the podcast notes as well. Thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Medical Women podcast. Make sure to subscribe for free on whichever podcast platform you listen on so that you can automatically get our episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so grateful if you could rate and review the podcast. This is a brand new podcast and it would really help people to know that we exist. If you're interested in joining the Medical Women's Federation, we'd love to have you. And all links to our website and social media are in the show notes. This podcast has been produced on behalf of the Medical Women's Federation by Dr. Nathana Bankram and Miss Jenna McKenzie. Our music was composed and played by Miss Kithki Bankram. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again soon.